I'm going to today talk about healthy habits for the new year. And uh, you might maybe have predicted that that would be the topic, but it really is based on a text that I find us sovereignly, providentially in today, Mark chapter 3, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles, would you find Mark chapter 3? I'm going to read verses 13 through 19. I'm going to give you 7 through 12 as a backdrop, but we're going to focus in on really the, the first few Verses here even of 13 through 19. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. I want you to look at your Bible. It's going to be important that you look down. I'm going to be pointing out uh, some important uh, points from the text uh, that I want you to see yourself. Uh, it's on page 787 if you need that, but Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you don't mind, stand with me and let's read verses 13 through 18. Here's what the scriptures say. And Jesus, he went up on the mountain, and he called to them those he desired, whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Some of your virgins might actually also say, to, ha- to heal diseases, and certainly that matches up to what the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus did for these apostles. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve. This is how Mark is going to refer to the disciples. He's going to refer to them as the twelve. Twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boangris or sons of thunder. Verse 18, Andrew and Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot. This is amazing because Mark points out that there's a guy by the name of Simon the Zealot. He's a, he's a Zionist. I mean, he loves Israel. He fights for Israel. And then you've got a guy like Levi, who was a tax collector, who had uh, turned his back on Israel. And they're part of the 12. Uh, and then there's Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. But then notice verse 20, uh, just kind of just to fill you in a little bit where we're going next week. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. This is the idea that Jesus did not think normally. He wasn't a normal person, and certainly was not. Um, The Puritans have considered Jesus an abnormal person. He certainly was. And he was abnormal for all the reasons that we know, but he thought differently than everyone around him, but everyone around him should have thought like he thought. His family said he's out of his mind. He didn't think right. And and even if you kind of backtrack a little bit, there's a little bit of humor if you think about it. He chose 12 men whom, if we sat before and interviewed for a job, probably would have passed and said, are there other resumes we can read? But he chose us. And that's encouraging. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Help us as we study it this morning that it might pierce our hearts, change us, and transform us from the inside. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, I don't know what the season was like for you, how much of you, what you got you wanted, what you got you wanted might have been people that came close, friends, family that you got to spend a little bit of time with. Uh, hopefully that was really, really good and encouraging and joyful. But if you were able to go 
uh, before the throne of God today. And I know that all of us who are believers understand we've been called to the throne of grace and we can humbly go there and ask boldly whatever we will. But suppose physically, like you literally are in the presence of God, physically in his presence on your knees before his throne, okay? And God says to you, you're, you're his child, anything you want, ask and I'll grant it. You ask anything and I'll grant it. What would you ask? You're before the throne of God. Some in this room might say, well, man, I would ask God to help heal some relationships that are just broken in my life. Or some of you, it would be to call a wayward child back or maybe a wayward parent back. You would say, God, I have these physical needs that I'm asking you to meet. Would you meet these physical needs or financial needs? If you could just help here, that would be wonderful. Maybe you're thinking, because this is the prayer of some, I just pray, God, I can see Christmas of 2024. Because if I'm not healed, I won't, not here on earth. So you have those prayers. You're before the throne of God. Think about it for just a moment. What is it like there? What we know from Scripture is that it is a joyful place. There's no better and joyful place than before the throne of God. There's joy in the presence of the Lord. There are no tears in the presence of the Lord. There are no sad faces before the presence of the Lord. There is joy. Are you following this? There's joy. Like no one's ever known. I mean, people are going to gather with tightened security tonight to try to enjoy the New Year's however they want. That will be nothing in comparison to the joy that's before the throne of God. Are you following this? So you're there. You're un believably full of joy. Never been like this. You're full of peace because there's no conflict, no chaos before the throne of God. Everything is as it should be. No disorder. You're perfectly at peace for the first time in your entire life. You're loved because God knows you and loves you and you're not ashamed. You're in his presence full of joy and full of peace and loved. Here's what I believe that you would ask for if you were there. No matter who you are, what's going on in your mind right now, you would say, God, I have a request. What is it? I don't want to leave. That would be it. I don't want to leave. And the good news is this. One day we're going to be with the Lord because that is his plan and we will never have to leave his presence. But there is something very special for us here. In this text, we see how Jesus calls his disciples to be with him. And that, that be with him is more than to be with him in the physical sense or in a geographical sense on a mountain. But it is to enjoy his presence and therefore be transformed from the inside out by being with Jesus in order that they might go and do what Jesus would do. And before Jesus sends them out, If this is all you get today, all right, this is it. You're like, what was the sermon about? It's this. God wants to make you something before he gives you something to do. I know 2024, we make lists and we uh, make resolutions. Les and I were talking about what resolutions we might make in 2024. What are the things we're going to do? But I have really come under conviction in studying this text that it's far more important that I become something then I do something. I guess it's important to do something. Amen. More important to become something. How do I make these decisions? 
Well, let's look at Jesus. Before I get into kind of our points, they're very quick and helpful, I hope, this morning for you. Look how Jesus makes his decisions. Did you, uh, if you've gone to college, you probably took a psychology class. I think it's the number one most taken class, Psychology 101. Y'all take that class in college? If you're headed to college, if you can avoid it, avoid it. I should have got some amens there. So number one, taking class in college. And what does it teach us? That people have needs. And they're going to seek to get those needs met somehow. It's also true, if you take a sociology class, you're going to see that there are communities that have needs, and those needs are assessed by, hey, they're normal needs, everyone has these needs, are there felt needs, people feel like they have them, are there expressed needs, not only are they normal felt, but then they express them, that's the person who says, I need help, they find a therapist, I need help, they get financial counseling, there's comparative needs, that's the needs that people have that rise as a result to looking at others around them and deciding Man, I don't have what they have, so therefore I need to better my life. Or maybe there's the critical need, which are any of those needs that are absolutely urgent and they're to be addressed right away. They're critical needs. Someone's in danger. Um, They're running from an abusive spouse. They're homeless. They are going to be homeless with children. There's all of these needs, and they're real needs. You and I have needs in our life. It's the brokenness in which we live that uh, kind of raises these needs to our awareness. And it's why we probably make the decisions we make on how we're going to enter into a new year and make decisions, um, write down resolutions and make choices. And we're going to look at what is it that I need? What is it that I need? And so like, you know what people think they need because every store you go in is full of treadmills and um, workout equipment and uh Yoga pants, God forbid. So all of these things we think we need. I need these things. Or I need to better my mental health. So now, you know, you can download tons of podcasts. And um, um, they're, they're, they're pushing tons of books that you can listen to audibly. Or you can buy. And if you go online, that's kind of what's being pushed. Things to make your life better. And, and some of those things are very helpful. They're needed, but they're felt needs. They're not the most important needs. How do I decide? Um, how do I decide what is important every day for me to do? What is that? How do I decide in 2024 these are going to be my priorities? These are things I'm going to focus on. These are the bullseye I'm going to aim at. Like I'm going to, if I don't do anything else, these are the things that I'm going to do. Eisenhower was giving a speech to the World Council of Churches in 1953. He quoted uh, a, a doctor, Roger Nicole, who was um, from Northwestern University. And uh, he quoted him in saying this, I only have two problems, two problems, the urgent and the important. I need to decide what's urgent and not important and what's important and not urgent. Now, that sounds pretty simple. I need to, if I'm going to make decisions, what's really important? What's really important? Or what's urgent? We know urgent, that is something that has a a deadline. I've got to do this. I've got to pay this. I've got to go here. There's a time stamp on it. I've got to get it done before Sometimes what's important becomes urgent because we procrastinate. Some people never get around to that point. But anyway, procrastination leads to sometimes the crisis and stress of the urgent. What's important? Important is what I need to do. I must do. It has to be done. But it's more complex than that, isn't it? Because the reality is there are some things that are both urgent and important. And there are some things that are not important, but they're urgent. And those are the things, sometimes, they're not important, but they're urgent, that we can set aside and free up our life up a little by not diving in to those things which are calling and crying at us. We, listen, we live in an age that 
focuses on urgent things more than important things like never before. I'm convinced of that. This is not chronological snobbery. It's because we have these devices with notifications that need our attention right now. I mean, you have people that text you, and if you don't text them right back, they're like, hey, are you alive? You dead? What's up? Why haven't you texted me back? There are emails that people send you that you think, man, I got to answer this, but you know, it really doesn't concern you and are not that important, but there's a pressure on us that we got to do it right now. They're urgent, but not important. There are things, though, that are important or, um, you know, they're, they're not or urgent or important. I mean, they're just not urgent. They're not important. They're not beneficial. They're not edifying. They're a waste of brain cells. They're scrolling through videos. They're posting online. They're things that we could do other things instead of, right? We all know those things. And uh, 1896, I, the last service, I, I said the 1980s, and I didn't know that, uh, and I know better because this book I've read twice, but in the 1890s, uh, a book was written called In His Steps. Anybody read In His Steps by Charles Sheldon? Charles Sheldon was a pastor who was writing a fictional novel that he presented on Sunday nights to his church. And he asked this question that became very popular about 15, 20 years ago, so much that athletes were wearing the bands. You saw it everywhere. And it, the question was, what would Jesus do? Now, does that sound familiar? WWJD. Uh, I have a, a, a friend that still wears the WWJD band all the time. Maybe you do. You're, you're asking yourself the question, what would Jesus do? And that's a, that's not a bad question. It's not a bad book. There's some you know good and bad in it, but really the good the good is that we can look and see what did Jesus do. Here Jesus is. Look at verse seven. You, you got to follow this and see what Jesus is doing and how he's making decisions. Verse seven. Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him. Notice this: a great crowd from Galilee. Okay, that would be that'd be a lot of people. But not just from Galilee, but from Judea as well. All right? So see that? Look at verse 8. And then Jerusalem. And that's the city. So, man, you got people coming from the country, from the seaside, from the city. You got people coming from Idumea, from beyond the Jordan, and from Tyre. So the nations around. I mean, they're all coming. Why? They have heard about this one who could meet their physical needs. If they can just get to him, maybe get in line, get their request met, they could have their physical needs met. Some with cancer and some with incredible diseases that have rendered them um, crippled and some can't hear, they can't see, and they have demons and if they can just get to Jesus. So this is the scene. Look in verse 9. He tells his disciples, have a boat ready. We got to get away from this crowd. They're going to crush us. Do you feel this? This is not this metaphorical. He has the crowd coming in panicked. Are, are we going to be the one? Are we going to be the one? You remember the days before the internet? Um, and Black Friday, and the, the videos of people running into Walmart to get a $300 TV, that's nothing like what Mark's trying to convey here. These people are panicked. i got to get to Jesus. They're looking for that number like at Publix at the deli. You are, I'm 341. Don't skip me. Why? I need it. And so Jesus says, we got to get away. What is the urgent need? Every, every one of these people, every single one of them with a disease, with a sickness, with an infirmity, with a, with a demon possession, Every single one of them with a mental issue, every single one of them could be healed by Jesus. He has the power to do it. There's no problem there. That's the urgent need. What does he do? He grabs his 12. He says, come with me. He knows, he knows what we need to see, that there are more important matters here. For one, to heal people, to heal people and not give them what they really need, to meet their felt need, but not their real need, it's only to empty hospitals to see those patients now go to hell. 
Jesus came in Mark chapter 1, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, calling people to repent and believe. It's been said several times. God had one son, he made him a preacher. The message of the kingdom came in great power. The message of the kingdom came in great power. Power over disease, power over demons, power over death and natural disaster. However, the message of the kingdom supersedes all of those events because the message of the kingdom is a message of the gospel that can set you free today to be saved and have your citizenship now in heaven. See, if you're here without Christ, or you've grown up and didn't really understand what it meant to be saved, you've been part of maybe some good stuff, good religions, good good things for people. But those good things get in the way of the best, and that is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the message of the kingdom. Jesus says, you guys, you come with me, and I want to be with you. So here's the first point. If you're writing your... uh, outline these are very brief help helping us to understand what it is that god desires of us therefore we can make good decisions on a daily basis number one notice this jesus calls his disciples to be with him you have your bibles look in verse 13 if you're in there if you're in verse 13 say amen good and he jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired who did he call Well, in this text, we don't have their names yet, so we know these are the guys he wanted. And he did call them. He called them. He knew who these men were, and yet he, according to Luke chapter 6, Jesus spent all night praying about his decision. Don't think for a moment that the 12 that are called here weren't already called before there was a speck of dust in the universe called the earth. They were eternally called of God. You'll have to work this out in your own mind, and we'll understand it better by and by when we get to heaven. But although they have been eternally called, they were always going to be his 12. Jesus still spent all night praying about this decision. There's a couple in our church that God has used greatly in so many of our lives, and they have blessed people by their testimony and by their, their generosity. They have a story, this couple, and they, they shared it. And when they shared it, you could have heard a pin drop several years ago about how they started their company. They're a very successful business. They employ a lot of people. God has blessed it over and over beyond our imagination, their imagination. But when they started the company, they had just a few dollars in their, in their, in their checking account. And they stepped out on faith to start this company, not knowing if it would fail or succeed. And before they made the decision, are we going to launch out in faith? No, though we don't have all the resources necessary, are we going to launch out in faith? We need to seek the Lord. And so they, the couple, got together and they spent all night long on their knees going through the scriptures and with a yellow legal pad writing down the scriptures that God was using in their life. They were praying for God's direction and which way they should go. When they got up the next morning from their knees, they said, let's go. This is the direction God's taking us. He held up, as he's told this story, the legal pad that God used so many years ago with all those scriptures where God spoke to them, not in a mist or in a fog, but from the scriptures about what direction to go after all night praying. And I thought that story absolutely illustrates what Jesus did. Even though, even though these 12 are the 12, they were always going to be the 12, Jesus still spent all night praying. Don't ever say in your mind, in your heart, well, whatever happens, happens. Faith be what it will. Or God's sovereign, so therefore he's going to do what he wants. Why should I pray? 
We should pray about everything. Pray without ceasing. Before we make major decisions to pray. I mean, there have been times where I can tell you that I have made major decisions without spending ample time in prayer. I'm probably the only one in here that's ever done that. I, I, you know, when we were young married, I said, look what I bought, baby. That went over well. Jesus teaches us to make an important decision. We need to seek the Father. He has a desire. So Jesus then calls the 12 to him. He actually calls them out. It's an important word. Or he appoints them. He ordains them. Now, culturally, in Jesus' day, men that wanted to be taught by rabbis or teachers would themselves make the decision to attach themselves to a particular rabbi or teacher. They would come alongside. They would request, can I follow you? Can I be your disciple? Can I be your learner? Jesus turns that cultural uh, norm on its head. These men don't ask to follow Jesus. Jesus calls these men out to follow him. It's interesting, too, the way he does this, because he calls them in a way that would indicate that he calls them for his own purposes. He says when he calls them in the middle voice that you are coming to me to do what I'm interested in. In other words, in other words, I'm calling you for my self-interest. Jesus is telling the disciples, you're coming for my sake. You're coming to do what I want. So he calls them for that purpose. How do I know that I'm a follower of Christ? I think one of the reasons that I know I'm a follower of Christ is that when I serve, I serve in order to think about the best interest of Christ. We're making a decision. You'll never and I'll never go wrong, ever. When we ask ourselves the question, will this decision that I'm making be in the best interest of Christ and his kingdom? Well, that makes it really clear sometimes. Is this in the best interest of Christ and his kingdom? I've been called. Have you been called? Have you been called to Christ? Do you belong to him? You've been called in the same way the disciples were for his self-interest for the interest of Christ, for his glory, and for his kingdom's sake. When discerning God's will, then, when we act in the interest of Christ as a believer, it will be our desire, our desire to do what God has called us to do. Jesus called the disciples, and he desired them, and they desired him. He did not call them on a whim. It was the express desire of his will that they would come, and they came. Notice that. Look at the text. They came. The way that is indicated in the Greek tells us that they did it immediately. They did not hesitate in their obedience. But strikingly, they separated themselves from others to be with Christ. Jesus desired them, and they desired to be with Christ. It's an amazing thought that Jesus would desire these men. Who are they? These regular rank-and-file guys, blue-collar workers. I mean, they had tempers and hang-ups and problems and baggage, and yet Jesus wants them to be with him. He desires them. He desired them. And he desired them because he is a God who's not needy or longing in any way, but he loves fellowship with his children. It's why we have a Garden of Eden. It's why we have... The Old Testament reminding us of the temple where God was present with his people. Why Jesus would say to us in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Why? Why? So that where I am, there you can be also. God desired fellowship with his disciples, with the 12, and he desires fellowship with you. One of my favorite stories, I've told it before, so this will be one right here. I've heard that one before, but man, I love this story because it so illustrates the, the and he humbles us in thinking about God's desire for us. A king 
who had his court, his aides, and all of his friends around him was so lonely. He was lonely as a king because he felt like the only reason people were close to him was because of his position. You can probably understand his thought process. So he decided he would, at night, sneak out past the service, secret service, past his guards, and he would go out into the streets and just hang out around the people. He put on pauper's clothes and walked around the rank and file on the streets. He would come back after being out in the cold and he would sit in the bottom of his palace with the firekeeper. And he would strike up a conversation with the firekeeper. He got to know the firekeeper. The firekeeper would tell him about himself, about his family, about his life. They struck an incredible friendship. So that the one day the king said, I, I just love the firekeeper so much. And I love spending time around the fire talking with this brother and my friend that today I'm going to reveal who I am. And I'm going to grant him anything that he wants. Imagine the shock when the pauper who had made friends with the firekeeper walks into the fire, the, the, the fire ring, around the fire ring with the firekeeper and says to the firekeeper, you thought I was a pauper, but I actually am the king. There he was in his royal robe, his crown, his scepter, and he sat down next to the firekeeper, and the firekeeper looked with tears in his eyes. And the king says to the firekeeper, you can have anything you want. You've been such a dear friend to me. You name it, it's yours. I have power over the kingdom. What is it? What do you wish? And the firekeeper said, you've already given it to me. You've given me your friendship, and that's exactly what I desire. This is what is amazing, that our king, who needs nothing, would actually desire friendship with us. Think about your friends. Your friends in in your life are people that you've chosen and they've chosen you. You don't just come alongside someone and say, hey, hey, I want to be your friend. How much will it cost? You've chosen each other. But in this instance, our God has chosen us to be his friends. And it's a weird kind of friendship. Because we are his servants, but Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, but my friends, and you do whatever I ask. Why? We desire that. Here it is that Jesus called his friends. He called us as well. We are God's choice, and he has called us to himself. Secondly, notice in the text, Jesus then not only calls his disciples to himself, he makes his disciples to be like him. Look at verse 14. He appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, and that word apostles there are messengers, but this is in the technical sense and in the office, an office. Uh, every once in a while, you might get a bill uh, in the mail or, I mean, a, 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 not a bill, but a, a flyer. Or you'll go and you'll look online and you'll see that so, such and such apostle is going to be at the, uh, at the arena or at some church. Don't believe it. Here are the apostles that are called by God, and there are 12 of them. Judas is going to fall, and Matthias is going to take his place. Paul is one born out of due time. Here are the ones that are the disciples. They're 12. In fact, that's what they're called. Someone called them the deities dozen. John MacArthur calls them 12 ordinary men. So does Brian Bill. Just regular old guys. But they are called to be with Jesus, and he's going to give them purpose, something to do. It is terrible, certainly, to live a life of purpose, uh, without purpose. It is terrible to live a life without knowing what you are here for or feeling as if you have no usefulness. Jesus is going to give them purpose, but it goes way beyond that. If you're seeking significance, then know this. 
God wants to give you more than that. And seeking significance is not what you and I are called into as believers. Here's what Jesus does for them. He says, I want you to be with me. The reason is that he might make them something. Then he might then send them out to preach. Before doing something, therefore, he wanted them to be someone for somebody. Before they could do what he called them to do. He had, first of all, to call them to himself. That he might transform them and make them into the creation that he desired. This is an incredible point. That Jesus Christ calls them to be with him. And to make them, make them with him. The, the idea in the Greek language is, is multiple. It has many meanings. That their significance and their, their identity and their purpose will be all wrapped up in Christ. That he will make them. Leon Morris has an interesting thought on this idea from the text. He said, though he made is a common verb, it is conceivable Mark intends to call this line into remembrance from Genesis. In the beginning, God made. God's going to make these men into something before he sends them out to do something. They would be with him. With is the word meta. And it's the idea of not just being physically with him, as I mentioned, but is living with Jesus in life. We say it in this day, this way. Live life together or do life together. Live in community. This is what Jesus desired. He desired that the disciples that he called to himself would be made into something by living with him. Watching him eat and drink. Watching him sleep and get up. Watching him pray and preach. Watching him go through the difficulties and trials of life. Watching him deal with difficult people and laugh at jokes. Eat a great meal and fast. To learn from him so that they could become something. They needed to be something before they could do something. You know, it was like two years ago when the Discovery um, submarine went to, to investigate the Titanic. But in, in arrogance, the designer of that submarine did not trust or did not go out and seek approval uh, of this journey. And, and the submarine, as you know, imploded under the surface, under the pressure of that great depth. The reality is God's going to send the disciples out and they're going to fall into pressure and under oppression. And they're going to go underneath the pressure of even spiritual attack. And if there's not something inside of them equal to the task outside of them, they are going to implode. This is the truth for you and I. There's too much for us that we've been called to do to do it by God's grace apart from being made something and transformed into something. He calls him that way. This past uh, week, I mentioned this last week too, that Terry and Gail Moore were celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, some friends came into town that had been part of their life for all of these years and gave testimony. And we got to hear some of these testimonies. Some of them we knew a little bit about. Others were fresh and just knew, found out some new information. But what was so, unless and I were saying this, so encouraging and celebrating with them their 50th anniversary, what was so encouraging to us is that there were, there were teenagers that were in their youth ministry when they did youth ministry as volunteers that came back to give testimony of what God had done through Terry and Moore in their life. Uh, Terry and Gail Moore in their life. There, there was one teenager that was in the ministry that came all the way from Minneapolis, Minnesota. One you probably know the name of who couldn't be there is with Jesus, Candy West. 
There were others there who, over the years, including uh, in recent days, have shared the testimony of what God has done through this couple in their own marriage and in their own lives. And we sat there going, that's what, that's what we desire. We want to be something for somebody. I mean, what do I have to offer? I mean, I don't have much to offer. I'm not near as articulate as some of you, but near as educated as many. Some of you have better skills. Some of you can do things I could never do. I can compare myself and think, what in the world can Scott or what Leslie and Scott, what can we do? But God can make you and I somebody for somebody. He can make us something that can be used for somebody else so that we have that testimony that what God has done, he's done through us. Because he did something first in us. So as you're making your list, what am I going to do in the new year? Here's the question. What is God going to do in you? Well, that will be determined on whether or not you are willing to be with him. To grow in the depth of your relationship with Christ. What we are becoming largely depends on how much we are with Jesus Christ. Before the disciples were sent out, they were sown in. Before you and I can be anything on any particular day, we have to be before Jesus, choosing the right thing in our devotion, in our prayer, in our seeking Him, in our groups. It wasn't just one or two guys with Jesus, it was 12. There probably and likely were many more than the 12 who were with Jesus, whom He was pouring Himself into, reminding us that if I'm going to be something for somebody, I have to first be poured into by Jesus that that oftentimes comes through the relationships I've chosen to surround myself with. That's why in 2024, I can say like most years, we're going to focus on groups as much as we've ever have, if not ever more, because we believe some of the most valuable players in our church are our group leaders, our Bible study leaders, who are sowing constantly into you as they prepare in smaller circles. As we get larger, we have to get smaller. As we get smaller, we get closer. There's accountability, there's love, and there's encouragement, and there's growth, and we have to have that. We are needing that. It's, it's a question of what am I becoming? And what am I becoming for someone else? Because none of us are a cul-de-sac. We are conduits meant to take what God is teaching us and to show others. There have been so many times in my life where I've read the scriptures in the morning and God has taught me something, given me something, or I've been worshiping the Lord and not knowing what was going to happen during the day, show up in a crisis marital situation or in a hospital room or in a death or, or some other situation. And, and then God, the Holy Spirit, in my heart, remind me of what he just taught me and sowed into me that morning so that I had something to offer that wasn't Scott. Because I'll go to those places sometimes going, I don't know what I'm going to say. I don't know how I'm going to minister. I don't know if these people even want me around at this time. But it's, it's just uncanny how that what God sows in us, he chooses to sow through us to be a blessing to others. And I can tell you by you know, by admission, there have been times I've showed up and left going, well, I wish I'd have said this. Not prepared with a word. And I never, ever, ever don't want to be some, something in me to be given to somebody else. I mean, that's like, like showing up to somebody's party. It's a food party. You're going there to eat. <laughs> but you didn't bring anything there. Then bring something to the party. Bring something to somebody else. Be something for someone. But you can't be something for someone unless... You're with the Lord. Which leads me to my last point here. 
Jesus sends his disciples so others can be with him. It's not only that Jesus wants the twelve, he wants others. So he sends them out to preach, doesn't he? He sends them out to share the gospel, the message of the kingdom, so that these ordinary men, everyday men, might do something because they are something. They have power over sickness. They have power over devils. That's not what's amazing. That is only to show the power of the gospel. They preach the gospel accompanied with signs. Signs that they really are of God. And our signs today, our signs today, that prove we're really from God is that we have been with Jesus. That we have now a new life. Our life has been made new. We're a new creation. We have the fruit of the Spirit flowing through us and it cannot be discounted. All the way over in Acts chapter 4, these These apostles, they're together. They're in Jerusalem. There are people from all over the place, and they're preaching. And in verse 13 of chapter 4, men are astonished. They're astonished. They say, what is it about these men? What about these men? They're common. They use the word. They're common men, and they're uneducated. We get the idea sometimes that men are uneducated here in Acts 4 because they've not been to school. Uh, They're they're not the, the brightest, the sharpest. They haven't formally trained. I would contend that the disciples had some formal training. Many of them, quite possibly, had been around John the Baptist. Some of them had actually been to different rabbinical schools. It wasn't that they were at the best universities. They had degrees like the Apostle Paul. But they were not dumb men, were they? They were not ignorant men, were they? Look at what they have written. Look at the the way God has used them. So in chapter 4, verse 13... When people say these are uneducated men, they weren't saying these are dumb, stupid, ignorant men. What they were saying in that word, these men don't think like the rest of society. They're out of their mind. They have a different worldview. They're out of step with us. They have a different thought process. That's why the people were astonished. And then verse 13 says, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. You can say, well, that just meant they knew that these men were Jesus' followers. I think Luke had more intended there, that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know that when you've been with Jesus, there is something about you that is recognizable for others, that that something is something for somebody because you are with the Lord. So my simple... um, Man, please, like this is for us in this year, is that we be with Jesus and that we continue to allow him who began a good work in us to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to make that commitment? I'm going to, if so, give you this confession. I'm going to read it and then um, like wedding vows, all right? You know, where if I'm doing a wedding vow, I'll say a, a phrase and then the groom, he'll say that to his bride because he's vowing these things to the best of his ability by God's grace. I'm going to ask if you're willing to confess your desire to be with the Lord, to be for him what he wants you to be, that you make this confession. I'll read it first, and then we'll come back to it. If you're willing, I confess that you have called me to yourself. Do you believe that, that God's called you? Have you been called? What have you been called for? I've been called for him, for his interest. Although Satan tries to use situations to distract and dissuade me from staying close, I have resolved that I'm never moving from the place where God has called me to be. I will never relinquish the dream he's put in my heart. I will stay. I will grow in closeness by being with you, Jesus. 
I will be steadfast and wavering and committed to seeing your good work come to pass by God's grace alone. Would you be willing to make that confession to the Lord? Would you do it out loud? Would you just repeat after me if this is the confession, if you agree with it? Would you say, I confess that you have called me to yourself. And although Satan tries to use every situation to distract me and dissuade me from staying close, I have resolved that I'm never moving from the place where God has called me to be. I will never relinquish the dream he's put in my heart. I will stay. I will grow close by being with Jesus. I will be steadfast, unwavering, and committed to seeing your good work come to pass in my life. By your grace alone, amen. That's a good confession. And it reminds us it won't be our work, it's his work. Submitting to him so that he can make us what he wants us to be. There's others of you here um, maybe had a hard time with that confession because you've got sin that you need to confess. Sometimes we get spiritually dry for several reasons. One reason is we get spiritually dry because we are in sin. Another reason we get spiritually dry is because the Lord puts us in the desert purposely so that we seek after him more desperately. Spiritual dryness is not always always because of sin. Sometimes it's because we're physically tired and a nap's not going to fix it. <laughs> we need rest like Elijah. Other times it's because we've not confessed our need. So I want to ask you to confess your need for the Lord. This is the confession. I'll read this prayer. And if this is your prayer and confession of sin to the Lord, then you can pray with me in just a moment, but I'll read it first. Lord, Strengthen me, stay with the call you've given me for my life. I know that where this is where I'm supposed to be. I know this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Forgive me for ever being indecisive, fickle, or going backwards. I'm asking you to help me not to be double-minded, but to be focused on you. And to fuel my grace-filled determination to never move or drift from you. I want to dwell at the address of faith. I know that is where I will please you the most. Thank you for making me what you desire me to be. For this is my desire as well. Would you want to pray that prayer? You could pray after me. Would you close your eyes and the way we talk to God through prayer and just say, God, I'm a believer. I'm your child. Strengthen me to stay with the call you've given me. I know it's where I'm supposed to be. And I know it's what I'm supposed to be doing. Forgive me for being indecisive, for being fickle, for backsliding. I'm asking you to help me not to be double-minded at all, but to be singularly focused on you. Fuel my grace-filled determination never to drift from you. I want to dwell at the address of faith, where I know that's where I will please you the most. Thank you for making me what you desire me to be, for this is my desire as well. Amen.